0: Welcome to Threads of Commonality. This is Sam Kelly, your host, and I wanted to put a little disclaimer out there for the listeners of this episode. This is going to be an episode where my guests and I cover everything from capitalism and socialism to activist programs to minimalist living to living in a truck to traveling across the United States and everything in between. So, Put on your seatbelt, strap in and resist the temptation to zone out during this conversation because if you hang in there, everything comes together in the end and it's a, it's a really good conversation with someone that I admire greatly. I'm Sam Kelly and this is Threads of Commonality where we lift the veil on the world issues that unite us like a thread weaving us together, keeping the conversations going that are vital to the health of our planet, animals, and our collective well-being. Meet everyday people making a difference in their communities, learn about what unites us, and discover ways to change the world. Together, we are powerful. Real conversations with real people. Welcome to Threads of Commonality. I'm Sam Kelly, your host, and our guest is Pierce Delahunt. Pierce is an educator that holds an MED from the Institute of Humane Education. Their research was a study of activist education programs throughout the United States. Believes that social emotional learning is insufficient, which we're going to talk about a little bit today. We're going to talk humane education, world issues, and how to think outside the box. Welcome to the show, Pierce.
1: Hello. It's really nice to be here. Thank you.
0: You have definitely led an interesting and diverse life so far, and I can't wait for our listeners to hear about it. You also have a refreshing view on the intersectionality of today's issues, and I'm looking forward to digging in. So I want to start with minimalism and your lifestyle and uh, your kind of detachment from mainstream society and what led you to live in a truck initially, right? They live in a truck and then you got a van and, and you just kind of, and, and there seems to be a lot of people doing that um, in the past few years, just kind of detaching from the systems in society and and this, this uh, wheel that we're all spinning on. So tell me a little bit about that journey here in the beginning of our conversation.
1: I think I got started into that when um, I always had, an affinity for road trips i've done a lot of traveling of various kinds so when i was done living in new york city which is where i grew up and on occupied lenape territory that um i but i didn't know where else i wanted to live until i discovered the northern california area occupied ohlone territory that i love over there um and i had always been into minimalism. So I didn't have a lot of stuff. I figured I could fit everything I own into a van or a pickup truck and drive over and turn it into a, a road trip across the country and try to learn and teach and grow and in all those ways. And, um, and so now I uh, have the van I've with COVID I've been living here in Boulder, uh, occupied Cheyenne, Arapaho and Ute territory. Uh, since November. My partner and her doggo in a vegan co-op, which has been lovely. It's a good situation. But yeah, I have the van and I travel around in it. And I had a couple modifications done to it to run on waste vegetable oil in an effort to be uh, more environmentally uh, friendly. I have uh, thoughts about that now in terms of complications and, and it being worth all the hassle
0: Yeah. So when I originally met you, you were living in the back of a a pickup truck. It was a Dodge, a big Dodge truck, and you had converted it to run on
1: that's
0: used vegetable oil. And I just was so fascinated by that because it was a diesel truck and and you did all these changes and I just thought that was so cool that you you were living that type of lifestyle where you were uh, kind of off grid and not and not. uh, You were doing the best you could to not exploit this planet and I really admire that because, uh, you know, with so many people on Earth and the lifestyle that we have, we're we're really, really damaging the the fragile ecosystems and and in turn affecting animals with which we share this planet, but also human life. And, and we'll talk about COVID because that kind of stems from all of that. What have you learned most on this journey so far?
1: It began in 2016, and it's taken a lot of weird uh, turns since then with the, or the pickup truck was 2016 anyway. Um, and, um, and I would say I've gone, I've grown and learned a lot since then. And I think the biggest thing is that the like individual consumers' decisions we make can only amount to so much that I can, uh, I can convert my vehicle to run and waste vegetable oil but so long as I, and like, that's not bad or wrong or anything by any means. But so long as I am only looking at my individualist consumerist choices, um, I'm just tinkering at the edges of the doily while there's this massive quilt of the institutional system that we need to change. And I think we get that switched up a lot. That That's what happened to me is I, I was trying to make quote unquote, the correct individual consumerist lifestyle choices, not realizing that like the way I think about it now is that we try to organize the system and we let our uh, individual choices kind of flow out naturally from that rather than trying to make Lifestyle choices in an effort to change the system that is that will never work
0: So I want to just set the tone of this conversation because there's Um, this is going to be one of the more different conversations we have in a podcast so far and Um, I feel like some people are going to tune out or they're not going to understand how to connect with what we're talking about Because this is kind of um, i'm going to use the phrase out there for a lot of people with thinking but it it shouldn't be (laughs) In my opinion, it should be how we are thinking, because to your point, there's a lot of pressure uh, to change what we do individually. And, and I try my best to do that. And, and as an educator, I try to encourage the kids to change, you know, to to be not just to be more uh, have a positive impact in the world and, and to realize how their individual choices affect everyone else and everything else and, and the planet as a whole. But, and that seems to be the focus. You know, uh, we need to change, and all the ownership is on us as individuals. But you're right. There's a systemic change that needs to happen. There's an institutional change that needs to happen. So, that's like the next level of activism, right? Absolutely. It's changing that institution, and I'm I'm sure you get into that. You maybe looked at that with your activism research. That was the focus of your master's. Um, that's right. So w- before we wrap up this first little segment here, can you tell me basically what you found with your research? I mean, what what's your number one recommendation for people to change the system? And then we'll dig more into that in the next segment.
1: The big takeaways that I found uh, as far as the activist education programs were a desperate need for an en- incorporating a class analysis and and uh, economic analysis into it. There was a lot of lack of that. Um, And I think that that is one of the key components that need to be integrated there. And there were some that were addressing uh, things like race for the ones that weren't explicitly addressing race they, I think they needed to do work to integrate that too. But there was, I, I, to my recollection, even less on covering an economic
0: and class analysis. So to your point, if we're going to be activists, and, and if we are going to change the system or the institution, we need to prepare ourselves. There are some programs out there, some ways that we can educate ourselves, because it doesn't it starts with learning, right? You have to become aware of something before you can go out and make any kind of change. So to your point, there are programs out there and there are ways that people can learn to be an activist, but a lot of them ignore the uh, socioeconomic impact as far as activism goes. The, the, the class system, you know, in which we live and and the economic system that's kind of binding us right now, right?
1: Totally. Yeah. I And I would say that this gets begins to get into a conversation that's very important. For me that I think is one of the the most important conversations is idealism versus materialism, which I use uh, those words in the academic sense, not in in the colloquial sense. So idealism, meaning that to use demonstrative examples that it's who we are inside that determines like our actions and what we do and everything. Whereas materialism is, it's what we do and our actions that determine who we are inside in our inner world. The idealist analysis kind of blends into that individualist analysis where if I'm good and if I make all the right choices and and we do that, then everything will be fine. Whereas a materialist analysis says that's insufficient. What we need to do is uh, restructure the entire system and then people will live into a way that is compatible with that system just the same way that under capitalism. Uh, as it has grown and evolved over time and, and the years that we've lived under it, it has conditioned our minds to have the inner world that they have, where we believe in these like individualist consumer choices as, as saving everything. That is a product of our uh, living under capitalism. It is a corporate scam, which is, again, not to say that that's bad and that we shouldn't be taking individual responsibility. That's, that's a different thing. Um, it is to say that corporations want us to think that so that the spotlight is off of them. They don't want corporate responsibility. They want individual responsibility. And so that they're the ones pushing that. We could very easily solve uh, the situations of waste and recycling. But, and this is just one example. But they push the responsibility of the individual to recycle so that they don't have to. That's the whole game.
0: So, Pierce, uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic, COVID. Um, you kind of touched on capitalism and socialism briefly in the beginning. And those are two very, they're trigger words, right? I mean, someone hears those words and immediate division and labeling and name calling starts coming about. But I want to try our best right now to have a conversation about how uh, what what capitalism and socialism are and how they might connect to the pandemic and kind of what humans are doing to the planet.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll start with what capitalism and socialism are not. It was just to say that socialism is not anything the government does. And capitalism is not anything the private industry does. That is a, the, the government versus the private industry is a different tension from capitalism versus socialism. In the United States, we have a capitalist government. And you know, when a lot of people, that's like a brand new concept to them that the government can be capitalist. But the question is not whether it's government or private, the question is who controls it? Is it controlled by owners or is it controlled by workers? And so if you have a government that is controlled by owners, you have a capitalist government. If you have a private industry that is controlled by workers, you have a socialist private industry, uh, or a business that's controlled by workers, you have a socialist business. And so that's the whole concept is who controls what. And the fancy word for that in the discourse is the means of production, just like whether that's the raw materials, the factory, the profits, all of that stuff falls under uh, means of production or capital or private property. But in terms of whether we're talking about socialism or capitalism, is who controls it. And so, under under capitalism, the owners control it. Under socialism, the workers control it. What we see is that the the you know the phrase uh, "power corrupts" and "absolute power corrupts absolutely." The more removed we are from the consequences of our decisions, the more we make those decisions uh, without with with impunity and without cause for concern if i own a factory on the other side of the planet i can decide to pollute the river it's next to um in order to increase my profits because i don't have to deal with the consequences of polluting that river i can decide i can tell the people the the middlemen who are there to make sure that those workers are working 14 hours a day, Um, because I'm not the one that has to tell the workers to work 14 hours a day. I don't have to see in their faces uh, the pain that they experience with that.
0: You're talking about the, the owners of the corporations avoiding those consequences, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Okay, but it, wouldn't it also apply to the end consumer? Because the more industrialized we've become, the more specialized we've become. And I know as an everyday person, labeled a consumer, because we're all consumers, right? So labeled a consumer, I am, am just in probably the past 15 years really investigating where all my quote stuff comes from, from commodities, food, clothing, and I would I would venture to say that most Americans anyway are completely removed from the source of their products and their goods which allows us to totally avoid seeing the consequences. Yeah. So you've got the owners of the corporations not seeing the consequences like you said, not looking in the eyes of the workers, but you also have billions of consumers that don't see the consequences either. And in that gray area behind that wall there's a lot of bad things happening that if more consumers could see it with their eyes, they might live differently. So I think it's from consumer and owner, right?
1: Yeah, I I would agree with that. Um, though I would would, uh, emphasize keeping the spotlight on the owners just because they have massive amount more of power than the consumer does. But it, it is true that if we had more transparency in the whole system, then consumers would have more ability to make those decisions. And, and, uh, and they would very likely be making very different decisions than they are now to the degree that they can. Because I, I have friends, I know people who hate the fact that they're spending money on the things that they're spending money on, but they can't afford to opt for the fair trade thing or the organic thing or whatever it is. Or we have to decide between the stuff that's made out of more biodegradable materials, but the boss treats the workers horribly and uh, and uh, fires people who try to organize a union, or the stuff that treats the workers better but is made out of plastic, or the stuff that is not vegan, or like whatever it is. The the vote with your dollar thing is is not wholly irrelevant, but if we if we only ever talk about that without embedding it in this grander context of what how do we organize uh, to make the the CEOs and the board of executives change their stuff then then it's a losing game the, the the example I like to use is that the the Montgomery bus boycott for example was not just a bus boycott it wasn't just people going around saying don't Go on the bus. It was an entire pressure campaign against the government of Montgomery. They uh, spoke actively about it. They organized. They had protests. Right. So, like the idea that we can just boycott uh, Halliburton or Lockheed Martin into into being a sustainable business that doesn't bomb people or or profit off of the murder of of foreign countries. That's not going to work. We need massive pressure campaigns in addition to allowing our consumer choices to express that.
0: So how do we organize those pressure campaigns? And is that dabbling in socialism?
1: Uh, the short answer is it can. It depends on what that looks like um, and and uh, and how that operates. So I've, I've seen campaigns that are trying to organize uh, for some kind of change with the corporation. And uh, the campaigns will say something like, I don't know why the, camp, why the corporation is fighting this so hard. We just want this simple change. That's it. Which I wouldn't call that very empowering or radicalizing. That's not, that's not organizing the, the people in the campaign to understand uh, the root causes as they keep going uh, into further and further depths of that analysis. Whereas if we say, um, yes, we're organizing this campaign. We want the corporation to make this change, whatever that change is. And let's not lose sight that this is just one drop in the bucket. We have to keep making these changes. There's a lot more else that's going on. And we have to keep understanding uh, the, the, and, and adapting to how the corporations are going to be changing, too. That's actually uh, the, the school of radicalization of, of the process of uh, going out and, and protesting so that we're never, the work is never done. We're, we're not gonna ever gonna win a campaign and then like brush our hands off and then not find anything else to do. Um, we're gonna win a campaign if we do, and then uh, everyone in that campaign, if it's a, a successful campaign in the way that I imagine it, will understand uh, with new clarity the even deeper causes of the issues that they were protesting, and then they move on to protest those.
0: So what you're seeing is a workers' movement.
1: Yeah, and I do want to complicate the the use of the term worker in this sense, just because uh, I want to emphasize, uh, especially as per the disability justice movement, um, that it, it should not depend on our capacity to, to perform commodified labor, whether we have shelter and housing and education and health care. Um, if we are disabled to the point that we cannot contribute to the economic system in in that way we still have the human rights involved and
0: and thank you for clarifying because worker leaves a whole group of people out so it's a human movement mm-hmm. it's a human movement and thank you for correcting me on that and i guess the reason i said workers movement is to tie it to that whole capitalism socialism conversation because when you have this human movement or you know what I started to say was the workers' movement. Mm-hmm. That's what's needed, you know, to get the power back into the hands of the people, so that we can try to stop this destruction of the of the earth and the very system that's supporting human life, but also affecting all the animals that we share this planet with, and and the and the oppressed, the people. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you have the people organizing like that, in the end the narrative is controlled by those in power. Mm-hmm. So you have the narrative being controlled by the government, which is controlled by the corporations. Exactly. So we could make the argument that potentially we have a corporate oligarchy, but um, so the I can't remember the exact phrase, but whoever controls the narrative controls reality. You know, perception is reality. So by labeling this human movement of people wanting to have their rights and wanting to have some of the power back into the to everyday hands, um, that seeks to take power from the corporate oligarchy that's had it for so long. So. It's hard because they control the narrative mm-hmm. and they can label the protests in whatever ways they want to label it. They can, um, they can call us all the people that are part of this movement, socialists and that's socialism. And that's mm-hmm. so a big battle, isn't it? To battle against the, that narrative. Yeah,
1: it's huge, especially because they've been, the powers that be have been, um, Working away at our capacity to organize itself, um, and and I taking it back to education that is absolutely rooted in, among many other things, the education system. In that people walk away, you can you can study for however many years it is from pre-K through your PhD, um, and you can get a doctorate in economics, and you. It is entirely possible in this country that you will have never read a word of Marx. And uh, you will walk away, not with a PhD in neoliberal capitalism, uh, not in classical Austrian school, but you will walk away with a PhD that says on it, economics. And so that is, that's a grand sleight of hand in that now anytime that someone presents a critique of capitalism to this person whether that's Marx or whoever they say oh no i have a doctorate in economics and we never studied marx marx must not be not must not be important and and it must be trifling and it must be foolish whereas marx is the the greatest how richard wolf puts it he's the greatest criticizer of capitalism in history and a lot of other people have added on to it or, or complicated it or critiqued Marx too. But the idea that we can that we can study only capitalism and call it economics is just one of the ways that the systems have co-opted the the entire education system. And we we like to call what other countries are doing propaganda and quote unquote re-education centers and stuff, but then we teach our history like the the native people of this land got along with the pilgrims and Thanksgiving was celebration of communion and harmony. And we teach our history like the labor movement didn't have to fight tooth and nail and people literally were not murdered in order to get a two day weekend and an eight day and an eight hour work day, and to, to end child labor. And we teach our history like we're not being told the same things today that we have been for centuries that we can't have this, it's too much, it's too expensive, it will never work, uh, we're just spoiled, all that. And they've been uh, working on that for a long time, so that we have a completely uh, detached from reality understanding of history.
0: so we kind of dabbled into a conversation about capitalism versus socialism and we touched on education um that you know the history of education and the movements in our in our modern time here but how does how does all this connect to COVID? because that's our pressing issue right now i mean to your point there are so many issues that need attention but right now we're kind of at a standstill. We're we're stopped. Even that even a lot of the activist programs are stopped because of COVID. So can you kind of make a connection to that and and what's going on with COVID and, and how it could possibly be a product of these system very systems that we're talking about?
1: Thousand percent. Yeah. So to speak to the the source of COVID and other diseases, the animal agriculture industry, right? Um, one of my biggest critiques, my, my grand critique of the vegan movement is that we focus a lot on spreading it as a consumer boycott decision, right? Where if we could empower the workers of the slaughterhouses, which like some vegans might feel a little uncomfortable with, but it, and, and to be clear, I am myself a vegan, but to, if we could empower the workers of the slaughterhouses uh, such that they had it their way, they would not be killing the number of animals that they are killing. There, No one who works at a slaughterhouse wants to kill, depending on what slaughterhouse we're talking about, dozens to a hundred animals per minute, which that is a decision made by the owner who probably has never even seen the factory that he owns, depending on the scale and size of the company we're talking about.
0: And the reason you're talking about slaughterhouses and animal agriculture is because covid Came like other pandemics, like the Spanish flu, came from raising animals or using animals as a food source and those conditions, and and that's how we got to this point, right, where we're talking about animal agriculture.
1: Mm-hmm. Spanish flu was a swine flu.
0: Yeah, started in Kansas, right, on a on a pig farm, hog totally. farm.
1: Yeah, so ex- exact, and you can see the same kind of propaganda happening today, where like we are taught that it is the Spanish flu, even though it originated on a hog farm in Kansas, because it was a xenophobic campaign, just the way that uh, Trump and others are calling uh, COVID-19 the the Chinese virus, right? It's the same stuff, it's the same stuff we're always seeing. Um, but so yeah, so that it is exactly because uh, of the CEOs who do not have to bear the responsibility uh, that they are then pushing systems beyond their capacity, including the human systems of the workers, the environmental systems of pollution and disease, and um, and the animal systems beyond their capacities to even live out the, the course of a, of a natural life. So I, I do happen to think that the culture system is a, is a very perfect system to analyze in all these ways where so many of those things come together in that intersectional and very clear way but it's it's true of all systems
0: so you removed yourself from the quote system as much as possible but you but you realize that even that's not enough right so so how do we move forward you know i want to end this podcast today this episode on a positive um i want i want people to be able to listen and walk away with learning from you and and your experience and what they can do to help make systemic change. So what, how can we do that? What have you learned?
1: I would say that I tried to remove myself from the system. uh, And, and then in doing that and in learning, uh, I've come around to understanding that actually we need to be engaging with the system and we need to be resisting and fighting the system that does exist as well as, building new systems to take that system's place. We need both those things to fight the existing structures and to build the new structures or to grow the new structures.
0: So it's not good enough to say, that's it, I'm fed up, I'm going to remove myself from the system and I'm going to go buy some land in the mountains and I'm going to live there off-grid and not see anybody. Like, that's not the solution. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's not. I, me Like, my personal, I don't want to be here doing this, right? I don't want to dedicate my life to... Combating the injustices of the world, I want to spend my life in the woods. That's that's my dream. But I'm that if I do that, I'm turning my back on everyone who uh, who does not have that as an option, and I am I'm exploiting my privilege. Whereas right now, I'm I'm trying to leverage my privileges such that I'm doing the work to dismantle those systems and to help contribute to the growing of the new systems that can take their place. And so that is about redistribution of power, right? I, I am an inheritor, I'm a person of wealth, and I uh, am redistributing those funds and not just the funds either, but and this is very important in donor organizing, which is, is a, a movement that I'm involved in, but um, and very important in donor organizing is that also not just giving away those funds, but giving away the power right? So I'm not donating money and then asking for like, are you sure you're only doing it like the most efficient way possible? Let me see all the receipts. And and I'm not using the donation to nonprofits to purchase a managerial position for myself, which is what a lot of people end up doing. And I'm also not donating money to a place like the, the Robin Hood Foundation, which is in name, An organization that combats poverty, but it is entirely run by wealthy white hedge fund managers who, surprise, surprise, are not making the the most effective decisions to dismantle poverty. So I fund uh, nonprofits and organizations uh, led by low income folk of color because they are the people with the lived experience, the on the ground reality of the oppressions that they're facing. And that inherently means they have more understanding of the solutions involved and how to navigate those systems. I don't know how to navigate poverty and racism and sexism, so I'm not going to donate to myself, for one thing, or another wealthy white man. I'm, I'm going to donate to fund the movements led by the people whose liberation my own liberation is invested in.
0: And in a perfect world, what does it look like to you? I mean, how do we move forward as a society and what can listeners do? Like what, what's your perfect, perfect world?
1: Uh, quote unquote end game and the work never ends. But end game perfection is like everyone has the means of production, the control over the means of production of their own sustenance, right? Everyone has the capacity to give themselves shelter and food and healthcare and education, and that can look a lot of different ways. But that's that's the broad capacity or the broad vision in order to get there. I mean, we that's that's the the other thing is that the scarcity myth is a lie. Uh, we have six, and this was before COVID with massive evictions and such. So it's probably worse now. But we have six empty houses for every unhoused individual in this country i'm not talking unhoused families i'm talking unhoused individuals so the, the idea that we that not everyone can have housing is itself an injustice and an oppression and it's it's one that we need to to do away with everyone can have housing everyone can have food and healthcare and education and the the powers that be just do not want that and so what, is, what do we have to do? We have to organize ourselves against the powers that be. And in that work, this also means that we need to critically examine the things that are dividing us. So for instance, taking myself, a wealthy white male, my internalized racism, my internalized sexism, and my internalized capitalism were all keeping me from organizing with people to dismantle these oppressions and to grow something new, which is, and I'm not saying that I, I use the past tense there, but I'm not saying I'm done. That, that's a lifetime commitment. And I still have internalized racism, sexism and capitalism, and I'm still uprooting all that. So that, so the commitment to the organizing and then the uprooting of the internalized oppressions in, in ourselves, those are the things that we need to be doing. And that work is praxis, right? Uh, that's the fancy word that gets thrown around a lot. But it's doing whatever organizing work and then reading up on theory and, and reflecting on how these systems are still in us and, and how our actions reflect that and what worked and what didn't work, what are ways we can contribute and then taking more action and then taking more reflection. And it, it's that constant cycle that is the, the path.
0: Yeah, it's so it's learning it, it's it's it all starts with opening your eyes and just being open to new information. Being being living in an open way to where you're open to new information and and regardless of whatever age you are, right? I mean, we we should be lifelong learners from the from the moment we enter this world to the moment we leave we should be learning and that's uh, so that's crucial the learning and, and the being open to learning new information and then and it doesn't just stop with learning once you've learned something now you have to st- Put that in practice. You know, you've got to say, okay, I, I, my eyes have been open to something. Let me change a little bit, which change is hard, but let me change a little bit, and then let me reflect. Use that word, reflection, and what you were saying, that's important. And then let me learn again, and it's just this constant growth, like a wave. You know, it's this constant cycle, and we should never stop learning.
1: Totally. Yeah, one of my favorite quotations. I want to say it came from a historian, I forget his name off the top of my head, but the quotation is, it is not ignorance that is the greatest obstacle to discovery, but the illusion of knowledge.
0: Is there any way, if people are interested in what you're doing, from your educational work to your traveling to your activism, is there any way that people can find you?
1: I'm, I'm super uh, searchable. Uh, if you look up Pierce Delahunt or my handle on everything is always... Uh, de la pierce d-e-l-a-p-i-e-r-c-e-d um, you can find me on twitter and instagram and i have a medium page where i i write about a lot of this stuff and you can see some of my some of the recordings of the talks i've given as well that's on medium.com backslash de la pierce or just put in pierce Delahunt with the quotation marks and i'll come right up
0: Okay. And I'll share all that in my blog um, about the episode so people can easily find that. So thanks again for being on the show. And um, I, I look forward to talking with you again. Excellent. That wraps up this episode of Threads of Commonality. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you found some common threads and enjoyed listening. Please remember to click the subscribe button, share, and find us at threadsofcommonality.com. I'm your host, Sam Kelly. Remember to keep the conversations going.